In the name of the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we have made it to the second week of Advent. Now, last week our Old Testament lesson came from the words of the prophet Zechariah, who talked about the Lord going out and fighting the nations on behalf of his people. And when we read passages like that, we often rejoice in the day of the Lord. Then we come to readings like the ones we had today. Our Old Testament lesson comes from the words of the prophet Malachi, who challenges us to reflection, introspection, and repentance as he asks us, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Now, some of you might be thinking, what is going on with Father Dan? We are on our way to Christmas, and he sounds like the troubler of all saints, bringing messages about the second coming of Christ. Well, let me reassure you that you will get to eight pounds, six ounce newborn infant Jesus soon. But right now, it's Advent. So at least at this point, you will get eyes like flame of fire, sword coming from his mouth, riding on a white horse, Jesus, okay? Consider the collect of the day from last Sunday, which said, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead. Today's collect requests that we may embrace and ever hold fast to the blessed hope. So, right now, we aren't necessarily looking back at Jesus' first coming. We are looking forward to his second coming. So just before our reading, the words of the prophet Malachi confront the people of God. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? It's amazing to think that the people of God were behaving in such a way that the prophet is literally saying, God is tired of y'all. Sometimes you have to stop and ask yourself, am I behaving in a way that God is tired of me and my mess? These people had wearied the Lord with their words. Sadly, their actions were nothing to be applauded. The people are crying about God's love, or lack of love, rather, for them. The priests are offering polluted offerings. The people of God have profaned the covenant. I mean, you can't get much worse than that, or can you? The words of Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, are what make it worse. The people's actions have been horrible, and now their words function as indictments against God. The actions and words of the people come together in this way. Why should we worship God rightly and keep covenant with him when we see the prosperity of those who do not follow him? 
In today's terms, it sounds like, well, why should we worship God in a right and orderly fashion when the conservatives are getting their way? Or it sounds like, why should we exhibit Christian character in all we do and say when the liberals are ruining everything? In some ways, it reminds me of the story of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. I like to call it the rebellion. No one tripped and fell. Humans rebelled against God. And when God confronts Adam, Adam responds to God and says, God, it was this woman you gave me. I'm not going to take responsibility for what I'm doing or where I am. The woman you gave me gave me the fruit and I ate. All of a sudden, Adam tries to relinquish himself of responsibility. And he places it on, on the woman and on God mostly. And now we have people who say, well, should I do what God says do? Because he's not doing what I want him to do. No matter who you are, don't sound like the people Malachi confronts. The people who say God is not right because I am not getting my way. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, where today's reading begins, the Lord, not the prophet, speaks in first person. He says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Back in Malachi chapter 2, we find that the priests were not doing their job. In verse 7, Malachi says, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. The priests were to function as the messengers of the Lord, but the priests had not been faithful to the Lord. And even if they were speaking the right words, they would have been heretics of the heart who led the people into stumbling, as instructions are far, far more than the words that you speak. They're the things you do and model for others. Consider the words of St. Paul, who encouraged the Corinthians to imitate him as he imitated Christ. Not only do your words speak and teach, but the actions you portray before other people do the same. It is after the coming of the messenger that the Lord will come. His coming will be sudden and unexpected. But now why would there be this mention of the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight in chapter 3, verse 1? It seems to be in response to the horrible situation associated with the priesthood and the people. Let's go back to chapter 2. Beginning in verse 3, the oracle says, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings. 
and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. Skipping down to verse 10, it says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. With unfaithful messengers who fail to proclaim the covenant in a faithful and responsible manner, and unfaithful people who fail to keep the covenant, the Lord promises to step in and send his messenger, the messenger of his covenant, one who will righteously call the people to faithfulness. In my experience, when the people of God ask about where the God of justice is, they desire for God to judge the sins of those they don't like, while he overlooks their sins and offenses. But the Lord does not work like that. Verse 2 of chapter 3 asks, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? The answer is obviously no one. No one can endure the day of the Lord's coming, and no one can stand when the Lord appears. For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And what we often fail to realize as the people of God is that we are so concerned with God dealing with those things outside of the church, those things that are in the world, but we fail to recognize that God starts with refining and purifying his people. He starts with us. The prophecy continues, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. The refining process is never pleasant, but notice the results. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem 
will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. No longer will there be polluted offerings presented to the Lord. The offering of the people of God will be pleasing to him. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, God brings that judgment against the priests, and I'm not a priest, so I'm fine. Wrong. As children of the Reformation, we fully embrace this concept called the priesthood of all believers. The Bible clearly states that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. But it's amazing that people like the idea of the priesthood of all believers when it comes to challenging ministry leaders, but abandon it when it comes to priestly responsibilities for the people of God. As the people of God, you must accept the privileges and the responsibilities of your place in Christ Jesus. The conclusion of the text with verse 5 presents a very chilling image. Once again, the prophet no longer speaks and we hear the voice of God in first person as he speaks directly to the people. He says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. The people want their version of justice. They wanted a version of justice that did not align with God's word, but God is bringing his justice and his judgment to his people. He says, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Remember above, in chapter 2, the covenant was a covenant that also involved fear or respect of God. And God says that he will be a witness against those who do not fear and revere him. The people asked, where is the God of justice? The text is very clear. He is coming. And he will address covenant unfaithfulness. People often look at issues that were mentioned in the first part, the sorcery, the adultery, the bearing false witness as biblical issues. They are issues directly related to people's connection and relationship with the Lord. At the same time, I hear many people, especially in the church, pejoratively refer to the issues of fair wages, the treatment of widows and orphans, and the subject of how we treat immigrants and refugees as political issues, not matters of the gospel. The word of God clearly, especially in this passage, does not make such distinctions. For him, how you act regarding all these issues, your behavior towards God and your behavior towards other human beings are matters of covenant faithfulness and they will serve as the basis of his judgment of his people. As a kingdom of priests, 
You might not be offering animals on an altar, but you are called to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. In the prayer of consecration, there will come a moment in time in that prayer where there is an offering up of ourselves to God. And it's a perfect reflection of this which we see right here. The question that you have to ask yourself is how does your offering look? Does it look like the polluted offerings that the priests were offering in Malachi chapter 2? Or will it look like an offering that is pleasing and acceptable to God as he talks about in chapter 3 after the Lord has come and purified his people? As you look forward to the Lord's coming and ever hold fast to the blessed hope, may you be convicted by the spirit where you fall short and comforted by God's word where you have been hurt by others, especially those who are in the household of God. Amen.